Chapter Sixteen of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter Sixteen: Last Days in the Valley. After returning from the so-called Greenback Raid, two of my companies, under Richards and Mountjoy, made a demonstration on Washington to keep reinforcements from Sheridan. Taylor, A.A.G. to De Russi. Washington, October 17, 1864. I have telegraphed General Slough to send at once five hundred infantry to Annandale. A small infantry force at either place, Annandale or Buffalo, will be sufficient to drive off Mosby who cannot have one hundred men. Taylor to Slough, October 17, 1864, 5 p.m. Notify Lazelle at Falls Church that he may not be surprised. Your infantry certainly is strong enough to hold any force of Mosby's in check. Slough to Taylor, October 17, 1864, 8 p.m. Mosby has driven in Lazelle's pickets. Send Wells's cavalry, if any is in Alexandria, to Lazelle, and let the 5th Wisconsin move rapidly to Annandale. Windship to Taylor. Alexandria, October 17, 1864. It is reported that Mosby, with about 300 men, is in the vicinity of Burke's Station this afternoon. Augur to Taylor. Rectortown, October 18, 1864. I have sent the 8th Illinois down through Centerville to find Mosby's force. The panic in Washington was very great, as is shown by many similar dispatches in the war records. When the 8th Illinois got to Fairfax, they found that we had gone back towards the Blue Ridge. They did what I was maneuvering to make them do, spend their time and waste their strength in pursuit of a jack-o'-lantern. About this time I heard that a force was moving to repair the Manassas Railroad, to make a new base for Sheridan, and I determined to move against it, and, if possible, defeat it. My success in accomplishing this was of greater military value than anything I did in the war, for it saved Richmond for several months. I sent Tom Ogg, one of my scouts, to reconnoiter and report to me at Haymarket, a little village on the road, which the enemy had not occupied. When we got near Haymarket about eleven o'clock that night, we saw a large number of campfires. The Yankees were ahead of us. After Tom got the information he was sent for, he came to meet me according to our appointment. He saw the campfires and naturally thought they were mine. When he got near them, a picket halted him and called out, "'Who comes there?' Og had no suspicion that the demand came from an enemy, so he replied, "'Og! Tom Og!' Don't you know Og? The picket had never heard of Og. He did not know whether he was friend or foe, so, according to military rule, he ordered Tom to dismount and advance. Tom protested and again told the picket that he was Tom Og, that he had been sent by the colonel on a scout, and asked the picket to what company he belonged. The picket replied, Company E, and swore he'd never heard of Og. Tom then said indignantly, I thought you were one of that damned green Company E. E was a new company I had just organized. 
At last Og was compelled to dismount and advance on foot, leading his horse. It was pitch dark, and Tom did not discover, until he got right up against the sentinel, that the latter had a musket and a bayonet was pointed at his breast. But Tom never lost his presence of mind, so he said, "'I'm lame, and you must let me ride to see the Colonel.' The poor picket did not suspect Tom's stratagem, and consented. He really thought that he was only doing his duty and was talking to a brother-in-arms. Tom mounted, and as soon as he was in the saddle, drove his spurs into his horse, and darted off in the darkness, shouting to his men, "'Break, boys!' A volley was fired on his track, but it never overtook Og. It was a coincidence that this occurred just after we approached the camp from the opposite direction. When I heard the firing, I laughed, and told the men that I would bet it was Tom Og, and that he had ridden into the Yankees by mistake. But all is well that ends well. Tom lived many years after the war, and we often laughed about his surprise that the Yankees had never heard of Og, Tom Og. Near Upperville, October 22, 1864. My dearest Pauline, I have just returned from a successful trip to the valley, captured a brigadier general, Duffy, capturing ambulance horses, etc., sent them out, then returning by another route, captured seven wagons, fifty-five prisoners, and forty-one horses. As soon as the Yankees leave the Manassas Road, I will send for you all. Fragment of a letter to Mrs. Mosby, probably November, 1864. We killed and captured about six hundred from the time of their occupying to their abandonment of the railroad, the Manassas Road. Since my return to my command, I have been in the saddle the whole time. From a Confederate Newspaper, 1864 The following is a clear admission of the injuries Mosby has been inflicting on the enemy of late. When they begin war on unoffending persons in this way, it is evidence of the desperation to which they are driven. Quote, Working parties are now engaged in felling timber on each side of the Manassas Gap Railroad, to prevent its use by guerrillas as a place of concealment. Orders have been issued that if another attack should be made on a government train, similar to the last one, in which so many lives were lost, every house of a rebel within five miles of the road on either side, shall be immediately destroyed. Meanwhile every train bears a party of rebel sympathizers, selected from the abundant number in Alexandria, to receive such bullets as their friends the guerrillas may choose to fire at them. Three physicians and one clergyman were among the first party thus sent. Another Confederate paper quoted the Yankee newspaper, published at Alexandria, as follows. General Slough, acting under special orders from the War Department, yesterday arrested a number of well-known rebel sympathizers in this city, for the purpose of sending them out on trains of the Orange and Alexandria and Manassas Gap Railroad, in order to secure their property against guerrilla attacks. When once the guerrillas hear that the trains are run for the special accommodation of their friends, they will not disturb the road. P.S. Since the above was in type, we learn that all those arrested in this city yesterday were sent out on the railroad train today. Footnote. Word was sent to Mosby that a number of women and children would be sent on certain trains. His answer was that he did not understand that it hurts women and children to be killed any more than it hurts men. End of footnote. 
By December, 1864, the war had practically ceased between the contending armies in the Shenandoah Valley. The greater portion of Early's forces had been transferred to the lines about Petersburg, while Sheridan had taken up his winter quarters at Winchester. My own command, which had been operating against his communications, never went into winter quarters, but kept up a desultory warfare on outposts, supply trains, and detachments. And although the southern army had disappeared from his front, these few hundred rangers kept Sheridan's soldiers as busily employed to guard against surprises as when that army confronted them. Unable to exterminate the hostile bands by arms, Sheridan had applied the torch, and attempted to drive us from the district in which we operated, by destroying everything that could support man or horse. But so far from quelling, his efforts only stimulated the fury of my men. In snow, sleet, and howling storms, through the long watches of the winter nights, his men had to wait for a sleepless enemy to capture or kill them. Telegram. Sheridan to Halleck. Kernstown, Virginia, November 26, 1864. I will soon commence work on Mosby. Heretofore I have made no attempt to break him up, as I would have employed ten men to his one, and for the reason that I have made a scapegoat of him for the destruction of private rights. Now there is going to be an intense hatred of him in that portion of the valley which is nearly a desert. I will soon commence on Loudoun County, and let them know there is a God in Israel. Mosby has annoyed me considerably, but the people are beginning to see that he does not injure me a great deal, but causes a loss to them of all that they have spent their lives in accumulating. Those people who live in the vicinity of Harper's Ferry are the most villainous in this valley, and have not yet been hurt much. If the railroad is interfered with, I will make some of them poor. Those who live at home in peace and plenty want the duello part of this war to go on but when they have to bear the burden by loss of property and comforts, they will cry for peace. As I wanted to have a conference with General Robert E. Lee about my plans for future operations, I turned my command over to the next in rank, William Chapman, and, taking one of my men, Boyd Smith, went on a visit to the Army headquarters near Petersburg. When I got off the train there, I recognized in the crowd the face of Dr. Montero, an old college mate whom I had not seen for thirteen years. I had changed so much that he did not recognize me until I told him my name. He was then a surgeon with Wise's brigade, and I told him he was the very man I wanted, for the surgeon I had, Dr. Will Dunn, was too fond of fighting. I wanted a surgeon that took more pride in curing than killing. I had Montero transferred to my command before I returned. After spending a few hours with General Lee, and getting his recommendation for the promotion of two of my officers, Chapman and Richards, I returned to Richmond, and in a few days was back with my men. On the day after my return, December 21st, I had gone to the house of Joe Blackwell, a farmer in Upper Fauquier, to attend the wedding of my ordnance sergeant, Jake Lavender. A report came that a body of the enemy's cavalry was advancing on the road to Salem a few miles away. Not caring to interrupt the wedding festivities, with one man, Tom Love, I rode off to reconnoitre. We were riding across the field of the Glen Welby farm, as it was safer than going by the main road, where there was danger of running against the enemy's column, 
when we saw two cavalrymen approaching. Soon a number of others appeared, and began firing at us. I knew then that these were the flankers of the main body of the enemy, out of sight over the hill. So Love and I galloped away a few hundred yards, and then halted on an eminence. They did not pursue, and we soon saw the whole column in blue moving on the road to Rectortown. After reaching there they kindled fires, and seemed to be preparing to bivouac for the night. It was about dusk. A cold, drizzling rain was falling, and freezing. The road was covered with sleet, and icicles hung in clusters from the trees. After reconnoitering the encampment, and satisfying myself that they had prepared to spend the night there, I dispatched a man to inform Chapman and Richards that I wanted them to attack the northern camp about daybreak the next morning, and to get their men ready. Love and I then started off in another direction for the purpose of notifying some of the other officers and collecting the men. When we stayed inside the enemy's lines we were obliged to disperse for safety. As we were passing the house of a citizen, Ludwell Lake, who was famous for always setting a good table, the lights shining through the windows tempted me, as I was cold and hungry, to stop where I knew we would be welcome. So, when we got to the front gate, I proposed to dismount and to go in to get warm, and something to eat. Love said that he would stay out at the gate and keep watch while I was eating my supper. "'No, Tom,' I said. "'It wouldn't do me any good if you were out here in the cold. There is no danger. Get down.' We tied our horses and went in. The family was at supper, and we were soon seated at the table, enjoying some good coffee, hot rolls, and spare ribs. Among those there was a Mrs. Skinner, whose husband was then a prisoner at Point Lookout. She had managed to get a pass through the lines to visit him, and had seen a number of my men who were also prisoners there. We were enjoying our supper, and her account of the trip, and the various devices to which the prisoners resorted for amusement, when suddenly we heard the tramp of horses around the house. One door of the dining-room opened toward the back yard and on opening it I discovered several cavalrymen. Hastily shutting the door, I turned to the other one, but just then a number of northern officers and soldiers walked into the room. I was better dressed that evening than I ever was during the war. Just before starting to Richmond I got through the blockade across the Potomac a complete suit from head to foot. I had a drab hat with an ostrich plume, with gold cord and star a heavy black beaver-cloth overcoat and cape lined with English scarlet cloth, and as it was a stormy evening, over this I wore a grey cloak, also lined with scarlet. My hat, overcoat, and cape were lying in the corner. I wore a grey sack-coat with two stars on the collar to indicate my rank as lieutenant-colonel, grey trousers with a yellow cord down the seam, and long cavalry boots. As the northerners entered the room I placed my hands on my coat-collar to conceal my stars, and a few words passed between us. The situation seemed desperate, but I had made up my mind to take all the chances for getting away. I knew that if they discovered my rank, to say nothing of my name, they would guard me more carefully than if I were a simply a private or a lieutenant. But a few seconds elapsed before firing began in the back yard. One of the bullets passed through the window, making a round hole in the glass, and striking me in the stomach. Old Man Lake, who weighed about three hundred pounds, and was as broad as he was long, 
and his daughter, Mrs. Skinner, were standing between me and the window. It was a miracle how the shot could have missed them and hit me, but it did. I have always thought that Yankee had a circular gun. My self-possession in concealing the stars on my collar saved me from being carried off a prisoner, dead or alive. The officers had not detected the stratagem when I exclaimed, I am shot! The fact was that the bullet created only a stinging sensation, and I was not in the least shocked. My exclamation was not because I felt hurt, but to get up a panic in order that I might escape. It had the desired effect. Old man Lake and his daughter waltzed around the room. The cavalrymen on the outside kept up their fire, and this created a stampede of the officers in the room with me. In the confusion to get out of the way there was a sort of hurdle race, in which the supper-table was knocked over and the tallow lights put out. In a few seconds I was left in the room with no one but Love, Lake, and his daughter. I saw that this was my opportunity. There were nine hundred and ninety-nine chances out of a thousand against me. I took the single chance. And won. There were at least three hundred cavalry surrounding the house, and if I had not been wounded I should have tried to get off in the dark. But by this time the terrible wound was having its effect. I was bleeding profusely and getting faint. There was a door which opened from the dining-room into an adjoining bedroom, and I determined to play the part of a dying man. I walked into the room, pulled off my coat, on which were the insignia of my rank, tucked it away under the bureau so no one could see it, and then lay down with my head towards the bureau. After several minutes the panic subsided, and the Northerners returned to the scene from which the shots of their own men had frightened them. They found my old friend Lake dancing a hornpipe. He missed a button from his waistcoat and swore that the bullet which had killed me had carried it off. Having heard me fall on the floor, he thought I was dead. The truth was that he was almost as near dead as I was. The daughter was screaming, the room in which I lay was dark, and it was some minutes before the soldiers collected their senses, sufficiently to strike a light. During all this time I lay on the floor with the blood gushing from my wound. In those few minutes it seemed to me that I lived my whole life over again. My mind travelled away from the scenes of death and carnage, in which I had been an actor for four years, to the peaceful home and the wife and children I had left behind. I overheard the soldiers ask Mrs. Skinner who I was. I was well acquainted with her, and her brother was in my command, and I listened with fear and trembling for her answer. She declared that I was a stranger, that she had never seen me before, that I was not one of Mosby's men, and she did not know my name. I am sure that in the eternal records there is nothing registered against that good woman who denied my name and saved my life. At last, after a candle had been lighted, my enemies came into the room, and the first thing they asked me was my name. I gave a fictitious one. They wanted to know to what command I belonged. I did not tell them the right one. My reason for doing so was that I wanted to conceal my identity. As I knew the feeling at the North against me, and the great anxiety to either kill or capture me, I was sure I would be dragged away as a trophy if they knew who their prisoner was. I had on a flannel shirt which was now soaked with my blood. The soldiers opened my clothes and looked at my wound, while I apparently gasped for breath. A doctor examined the wound and said that it was mortal, 
that I was shot through the heart. He located the heart rather low down, and even in that supreme moment I felt tempted to laugh at his ignorance of human anatomy. I only gasped a few words and affected to be dying. They left the room hurriedly, after stripping me of my boots and trousers, evidently supposing that a dead man would have no use for them. The only sensible man among them was an Irishman, who said, as he took a last look at me, "'He is worth several dead men yet.' There was a good deal of whiskey in the crowd, but they had sense enough left to take away my clothes. Fortunately they never saw my coat. I listened to hear them getting away. They passed out and left my fat friend and his daughter under the impression that I was ready for the grave. I lay perfectly still for some five or ten minutes. It seemed to me that many hours. But at last, as I felt assured that the enemy had gone, I rose from the pool of blood in which I was lying, and walked into the room where Lake and his daughter were sitting by the fire. They were as much astonished to see me as if I had risen from the tomb. They had thought me dead and were now sure the general resurrection had come. There was a big log fire blazing, and the room was warm. We examined the wound, but we could not tell whether the bullet had passed straight into the body, or, after penetrating, had passed around it. Shortly I became sick and faint. My own belief was that the wound was mortal, that the bullet was in me, that the intestines had been cut. Mrs. Skinner gave me some coffee, but I was too sick to drink it. My fear was that I had some documents in my pockets which would disclose my name. Although Providence had not protected me from the bullet, it had saved me from getting caught. That day I had been at Glen Welby, the home of the Carters, and for some unaccountable reason, just as I was leaving to go to the wedding, I took from my pocket several official documents and gave them to one of the young ladies to keep for me. If I had not done this, I would never have lived to write an account of this adventure, for if I had been taken off as a prisoner that night, I could not have survived it. The force of cavalry that I had seen go into camp at Rectortown was the 13th and 16th New York, under command of Major Fraser. They had only built fires to warm themselves, and after staying there a short time, they started on to Middleburg to join Colonel Clendenin with the 8th Illinois Cavalry from which they had separated a few hours before. That night they encamped at Middleburg. Several of my men, including Love, were prisoners, and they were shown my hat and overcoat and asked if they knew the person who had worn them. All denied any knowledge of him. The next day the Unionists returned to camp, little dreaming who it was that had been a prisoner in their hands. My own belief is that I was indebted to whiskey for my escape and I have always thought since then that there is a deal of good in whiskey. As soon as Lake recovered from the shock at seeing me alive, he went out and got a couple of negro boys to yoke up a pair of young, half-broken oxen to haul me away to a place of safety, for we feared that the enemy would find out who I was and return. After a while the ox-cart was announced, and I was rolled up in quilts and blankets and put into it. It was an awful night a howling storm of snow, rain, and sleet. I was lying on my back in the cart. We had to go two miles to the house of a neighbor, over a frozen road cut into deep ruts. When we reached there I was almost perfectly stiff with cold, and my hair was a clotted mass of ice. The family had not gone to bed, 
and one of my men, George Slater, was at the house. A courier was sent to the wedding party to carry the news to my brother and my other men, and before daybreak a great many of the men and two surgeons were with me. Slater had been present when Stuart had been shot a few months before. After I had been laid by the fire, I called him to me and said, "'George, look at my wound. I think I'm shot just like General Stuart was.' Slater pulled up my shirt. I was bleeding profusely, and told me that he thought the bullet had run around my body. This turned out to be the case, for it had lodged in my right side. Early in the morning chloroform was administered, and the ball extracted. Another of the good effects of the whiskey on my captors was that they went off, leaving my horse standing at the front gate, with the pistols in the holsters. If I had had them with me in the house, I'm very confident I could have cleared the way through the back yard and escaped in the dark. Neither Love nor I had a chance to fire a shot, and there is no truth in the reports that shots were fired from the house. I had nothing to shoot with. As I said, a northern officer was standing near, talking to me when I was shot. Although I was a prisoner at the time, I have never complained of it, for it proved to be a lucky shot for me. It was the means of my escape from imprisonment. A few days afterwards tidings came to the camp down in Fairfax that I was the man who was wounded at Lakes. A force of cavalry was sent to search for me, but although I was still in the neighborhood they did not find me. At the same time General Torbert, returning from an unsuccessful expedition to Gordonsville, passed within a few miles of where I was lying, but also failed to discover me. About a week after all this occurred I was taken to my father's house near Lynchburg. Richmond papers had already announced my death. Dr. Montero had not reached my command before I was brought away, so he came to my father's house to see me. Montero was a great wit, and had been with me only a few minutes when he had got me to laughing. This produced a hemorrhage from my wound, and it took all his surgical skill to repair the damage his talk had done. Major Fraser reported my capture and escape as follows. Fairfax Courthouse, December 31, 1864. Colonel William Gamble, Commanding Cavalry Brigade. Colonel. In obedience to your command I have the honor to report concerning the wounding of Colonel Mosby. He was shot by a man of my advance guard, under Captain Brown, in Mr. Lake's house, near the Rector's Crossroads, on the evening of the 21st instant, about 9 p.m., at which time I was in command of the 13th and 16th New York regiments. Several shots were fired, and I was informed that a rebel lieutenant was wounded. I immediately dismounted and entered the house, and found a man lying on the floor, apparently in great agony. I asked him his name. He answered, Lieutenant Johnson, 16th Virginia Cavalry. He was in his shirt-sleeves, a light blue cotton shirt, no hat, no boots, no insignia of rank, nothing to denote in the slightest degree that he was not what he pretended to be. I told him I must see his wounds to see whether to bring him or not. I opened myself his pants, and found that a pistol-bullet had entered the abdomen about two inches below and to the left of the navel, a wound that I felt assured was mortal. I therefore ordered all from the room, remarking, He will die in twenty-four hours. Being behind time on account of skirmishing all the afternoon with the enemy, I hurried on to meet Lieutenant Colonel Clendenin at Middleburg, 
according to orders received. Nearly every officer in my command, if not all, saw this wounded man, and no one had the slightest idea that it was Mosby. Captain Brown and Major Birdsall were both in the room with me when this occurred. After arrival at Middleburg I reported the fact of having wounded a rebel lieutenant to Lieutenant Colonel Clendenin. As soon as the campfires were lit so that things could be seen, an orderly brought me Mosby's hat dressed with gold cord and star. I took the hat and went immediately among the prisoners, eight in number, of Mosby's men that I had captured, and told them the man who wore that cap was shot dead, and asked them if it was Mosby or not. It was no use to conceal it if it was, as he was shot dead. They all said, no, that it was not Mosby, that he had never had such a hat, etc., etc. Some of them said that it was Major Johnson, 6th Virginia Cavalry, home on leave. In the morning I reported the facts and showed the cap to Colonel Clendenin and Mr. Davis, the guide. All this while I considered, as did all my other officers, that the wound was mortal. From Middleburg I came to camp. On this scout, from which I have just returned today, I have the honor to state that the man shot in Lake's house was Colonel Mosby. He was moved half an hour after he was shot to Quilly Glasscock's, about a mile and a half distant, where he remained three days and had the ball extracted, it having passed around or through the bowels, coming out behind the right side. I conversed with several persons who saw him. He was very low the first two days, the third much better. I tracked him to Piedmont, thence to Salem, and out of Salem towards the Warrenton Pike. I met pickets in various parts of the country, and understood that until within the last night or two they had extended as far down as Aldi. Various signalling was carried on by means of white flags above Piedmont. Several persons who saw him in the ambulance report him spitting blood and it seems to be the general impression that he cannot live. There is no doubt in my mind but what he is yet in the country, concealed, seriously if not mortally wounded. In both expeditions I lost neither men nor horses, and captured nine prisoners. Signed, Douglas Fraser, Major Commanding. Endorsement, Headquarters 1st Separate Brigade, Fairfax Courthouse, Virginia, January 1, 1865 respectfully forwarded to Department Headquarters. I exceedingly regret that such a blunder was made. I have given direction that all wounded officers and men of the enemy be hereafter brought in, although any officer ought to have brains and common sense enough to do so without an order. Signed, W. Gamble, Colonel Commanding Brigade. Gamble to Augur. I am informed that Major Fraser was too much under the influence of liquor to perform his duty at the time in a proper manner. Under the circumstances I have deemed it best to send Major Fraser with three hundred men to scour the neighborhood, and ascertain, if possible, something definite about it, he being the officer present at the time the rebel officer was shot in the house where it was supposed Mosby was wounded. Sheridan seemed as much delighted to hear of my death as the troops in Fairfax. No doubt he expected no more annoyances that winter. A short time afterward he sent a body of cavalry under a Major Gibson to that neighborhood one night, but Dolly Richards got after him, and sent most of his men prisoners to Richmond. 
The last heard of Major Gibson was that he had been unhorsed and was getting back to his camp full speed over the snow in a sleigh. Stevenson to Sheridan December 29, 1864 Mosby was shot by a party from General Augur's command at Rector's Crossroads. There were two or three men in the party. They fired at Mosby and some of his men through the windows, wounding Mosby in the abdomen. He was then moved to the house of Widow Glasscock. Torbert tried to catch him there, but he had been taken away in an ambulance. Torbert searched the house of Rogers at Middleburg, but he was not there. Mosby's wound is mortal. He and his party were eating supper when the attack was made on the house by General Augur's men. Augur to Sheridan December 30, 1864. Richmond papers of the 27th report Mosby's death as having occurred at Charlottesville. Sheridan to Emory, December 31, 1864. How are you getting along? The storm is unfortunate. I have no news today except the death of Mosby. He died from his wound at Charlottesville. The following account of the wounding of Mosby was written by a Yankee Major General for the New York Herald of December 31, 1864, and was copied by the Confederate newspapers. On Tuesday, December 17, an expedition comprising the 13th and 16th New York and 8th Illinois Cavalry, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Clendenin, started to scout the country this side of the Blue Ridge in search of Mosby. On arriving at White Plains on Wednesday, the command separated. The first named, 13th New York, proceeded toward Salem, and when a short distance from Middleburg came upon the house at which Mosby was then dining. Captain Taylor's company of the 13th New York were in the advance and maneuvered to surround the house, near which two horses with cavalry equipment were fastened. Corporal Kane, or Kane, with K, of Company F, rode near the house and was about to secure the horses, when Mosby opened the door and fired at the corporal. Kane raised his carbine to fire in return, when Mosby closed the door and ran into another part of the house. The corporal, seeing him pass a window, instantly fired, shooting Mosby through the bowels. Captain Taylor and others hastily entered the house. Some of the men proposed finishing the rebel. But Captain Taylor, having examined his wound, pronounced it mortal. Major Fraser, 13th New York Cavalry, also examined the wound and declared that the man would die. The rank and name of the wounded man were not known at this time. He had on a magnificent cloak of grey, trimmed with English scarlet and gold clasps. This cloak had often been talked about by inhabitants of the valley as belonging to Mosby, and was described by citizens as the richest article of the kind in either army. The boots of the wounded man were carried off and found to agree exactly, in make and maker's name, with a pair taken from Mosby's house when burned last summer. The rebel accounts show that their conclusions were correct, but, if we are to believe the rebel stories, Mosby is not yet dead. He may possibly recover. The devil takes care of his own. End of chapter.